Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Easter. Welcome to Restoration, if you're new especially. I mean, the reality is, is that coming to something like this for the first time is kind of a courageous act. Many of you are doing it because you've been promised free food later or, or whatever, but um, we're glad you're here. Uh, most of you look great. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, man, we're so glad you're here. Hey, listen, um, I just want to say, it seems like you guys are a lot more caffeinated and full of sugar than the first crew. So is that true? You guys feel it? If not, there's like (laughs) a lot of donuts in the lobby. And um, feel free at any time to go get a donut and come back in and just eat it while while I'm talking. So, um, hey, listen, my name is Ryan, Um, part of the staff and leadership here. Um, I just want to say that like this week's been wacky for me. Um, the, the thing that's been wrestling, I've been wrestling with a few things. Uh, one of the things I've been wrestling with is this kind of internal conversation and I've been having it. And I, I think, uh, some of you have been having it. Um, but it, on the one hand, here's how it works. On the one hand, uh, don't you feel like sometimes, uh, the world is falling apart at the seams a little bit? I mean, it's like this week, uh, throw out a few things, um, the fire at, at Notre Dame, right? Or Notre Dame, whatever. Um, that, there's that fire and everybody, you know, it was a big moment. Um, then you have, um, our government seems to be working great. And then, <laughs> right. And then, um, uh, for those of you, uh, if you, uh, maybe know what's going on, but 20 years uh, after Columbine yesterday, and then this week, uh, this, uh, this gal flies in from Florida, and it's just a tragic, tragic thing this week. This morning, I wake up to news of bombings at hotels and churches in Sri Lanka. Um, so like, it's like this feeling, right? Like it's all falling apart. It's all unraveling. And then on the other hand, there's this weird also, this other side of it that's like, it's a great time to be alive, right? I mean, progress and medicine and um, just so many things that are going, uh, technology, so many things that are going forward and making the world better. So we get this like weird juxtaposition, right? One hand falling apart, the other hand, never been a better time. And it's interesting is we've had some conversations about um, secularism as a church. We've been talking about this idea of, of, of a society and a world that is trying to create, right? A utopia without God on our own, you know, just doing it our way. And um, religion is in decline. Um, people going to church is at the lowest level ever. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, <laughs> But just hear me out. Decades ago, there was a philosopher and theologian named Leslie Newbigin. And Leslie Newbigin actually said this. He said, secularism will eventually expose itself as the untrue story it is. He said, at some point, it will run out of gas. At some point, all we'll be left with is Christ. And I'll explain that here in a bit. But he even said that the church, okay, the church universal will actually come face to face with its own letdown and disappointment. And I think we're decades later, and I think those words have been really prophetic. 
I mean, we put our hope in a lot of things. We put our hope in science to arrest global warming, put our hope in the school system to fight poverty. We put our hope in psychology to help us uh, get through mentally and um, survive emotionally. We put our hope in Washington, D.C. to pull us all together. We uh, put our hope in Hollywood to make us feel happy. And then we take all the rest of our hope and we push it towards Silicon Valley, right, to, uh, to help us get through life. And it just seems like there's letdown after letdown. So, by the way, welcome to church. Welcome to Easter. All the happy feels, you know, Easter peeps and make you feel good. But whether you know it or not, you've actually walked into a community of people, into a gathering of people. Normally, we're just together all at once, but try to make room for everybody today. And you've walked into a community that actually likes to look and believes in a different reality. A reality that Jesus is alive, and that actually has some effects on us, and the same kind of a reality that says, listen, there's pain and there's brokenness this side of the resurrection. And so we don't sugarcoat it, but for several thousand years, there's been communities of people gathering together that insist that Jesus' life, death, and burial, and resurrection changed everything, that had an effect that reverberated through history. And when we trust that story, something happens in us. Something changes in us. Something is unleashed and unlocked in our hearts. And, and we're one of those communities that believes that. But back to this debate, internal debate. I think it's an internal debate that we all have tacitly in our heads and in our hearts. On the one hand, the world's falling apart. On the other hand, it's a great time to be alive. It's just like this weird thing happening. And, and it's not necessarily like a water cooler conversation, but, but you can try this out later on family and friends, like see what they think. You know, just ask them, is the world falling apart or is it the greatest time to be alive? Which one do you side with? 71% of people polled said that the world is getting worse. And what's interesting is sociologists and philosophers at a higher level are writing big, huge uh, amounts of work on this and doing study after study. And on the one hand, there's some in that sphere that actually have the argument that the world has never been better. There's a guy named Johann Norberg who wrote a book called Progress. And he says, actually, no, the world is getting better. Civilization is getting better. And what he's done is he's tracked data for availability of food, for clean water, uh, for literacy, for sanitation, for life expectancy, for poverty, for violence, and for freedom and equality. And he said, here's the point. Every single category, we're at an all-time high. Like, everything is getting better. He, he writes this. Let me read this for you. He says, Despite what we hear on the news and from many authorities, the great story of our era is that we are witnessing the greatest improvement in global living standards ever to take place. Poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, and infant mortality are falling faster than at any other time in human history. 
life expectancy at birth has increased more than twice as much in the last century as it did in any previous recorded century, the risk that any individual will be exposed to war, die in a natural disaster, or be subjected to dictatorship has become smaller than in any other epoch. War, crime, disaster, poverty are painfully real, but they are rapidly declining. What we see now are the exceptions where once they were or would have been the rule. And this idea from Norberg was actually popularized by a guy named Steven Pinker. He wrote another book called Enlightenment Now. He's basically arguing that the Enlightenment was the hero of the West, that the age of Enlightenment was the biggest deal that pushed us forward. But poll after poll, since the 60s, over time, the decline in how people view life and their happiness is just continues to go down and down. Mental illness is on the rise, the family breakdown, with gun violence. And here's what's interesting. Pinker and Norberg, I mean, this is kind of getting nerdy, and you didn't expect this on Easter, but hang with me. Pinker and Norberg, who believe that everything is better than it's ever been, actually say the problem for us is that you and I have a news uh, addiction and that the news media has told us um, that the world is getting worse. And because bad news and tragedy and, and scandal sells... That, that, and we have availability of it all the time, that we just ha- get this sense, right? That it's all coming apart at the seams. But he says the data points to something different. I mean, for instance, if I was to, I mean, Elliot's standing up here singing, leading worship. If I was to tell you that Elliot does this on Sunday, but secretly he's an arms dealer on the side, okay? And that those cases he drags around are really just like stolen arms and RPGs. And he's making all of his money on the side. And if that hit the news, what do you think the news would be? Church in Arvada, worship leader sells arms, you know, whatever. And it would just be like all over the place, right? He doesn't do that. But here's the thing. What I'm telling you is that would be the news. And yet, if a, a family is saved from homelessness, and a child is adopted, and someone is healed, and a marriage is saved, and someone overcomes addiction, we actually have to stand up here on stage and talk about that. Because that doesn't sell. I took a break from news for a few weeks, um, a few weeks ago. It was glorious. Like, I, it was really hard at first. I think I told some of you about it. It was like, there's like this knee-jerk addiction. There's actually... Like almost like a memory in my thumb of like where the news app is on my phone, right? And I kept going there, just, just you know, just like intrinsically. And once I cut news out of my life and spent time just being grateful for the people and the and the stuff going on in my life and in my world, it changed everything for me. And then I came back to the news. Right? And there's a heaviness to it. So there's a group that says it's never been better. And then there's this counter argument. There's a guy named Andrew Sullivan. And he actually counters Pinker in an essay in the New York Times. uh, Actually, the New Yorker. And the title of his article is, The World is Better Than Ever. Why are we miserable? 
And he says this, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all our earthly needs. We've forgotten the human flourishing that comes from a common idea of virtue. For most the ancients, freedom from our natural desires and material needs rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, restraint, and education into virtue. They'd look, the ancients would look at our freedom as licentiousness, chaos, and slavery to desire. They'd predict misery, not happiness, to be the result. Basically, what he's saying is we have all this progress. We have all this stuff at our fingertips. We have all this access. And we're miserable. A modern world for all that is good, science, technology, luxury, lifespan, medicine, availability of food and entertainment and convenience, it has no meaning. All of these things are powerless to give us any meaning. In fact, brain scientists have noticed as they've studied and they've been mapping the human brain and and testing responses to so many different things, they've noticed that the human brain is actually hardwired to search for meaning and purpose. It's like default in us. To search for a meta story to insert our micro story into. That's what it's... That's what they're seeing. So here's my point. Finally, he's getting to the point. My point is that we live in a cultural moment. And on the one side, you could think it's all going to hell in a handbasket. On the other side, you could say it's never been better. Utopia is here almost. Personally, I feel like, yes, we're progressing materially. It's great. There's some cool things out there. But I also feel like we are regressing psychologically, relationally, and even spiritually. Grandma and grandma, uh, grandpa and grandma, they, had, they didn't have a Waze app. They didn't have an Instapot. But it seems like they had something else that we don't, right? And so we live in this tension of two narratives about the future. Enter a New Testament writer named Paul. Now listen to Paul put language to that tension. Paul, is a, is, he, he says this is a very human thing. Not a 2019 thing, but a very human thing. Listen to to Romans 8. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. A little bit of backstory here. Before Paul was a follower of Jesus, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. 
And Jewish rabbis, the Jewish tradition, believed in the world as two different ages. The present age and the age to come. Okay. In the present age, the present age is basically anything post-Garden of Eden story in Scripture. Meaning, the Garden of Eden was a a perfect place. Um, It went wrong. After that, and throughout history, we have war, genocide, murder, uh, fear, all these things compiling on each other in the human story. We have evil, injustice, we have spiritual evil, personified evil, material and immaterial, just things happening around us. That's the present age. Then there's the age to come. And scripture tells us that the age to come in the future is marked by the exact opposite. It's actually a place where there is no evil, that the kingdom of God flourishes, that everything is right. Everybody's in right relationship with each other, with God and with the world. And Jewish rabbis believe that between these two ages was a seam. And this seam was called the day of the Lord or judgment day or Yom Yahweh. Now, when you think of the word judgment day, what you probably think of is something negative or something kind of Schwarzenegger-y, right? Or both. (laughs) But judgment day is the day when everything wrong is set right, okay? Everything in disarray is put back together. Everything broken is healed. And so if you were a poor person under oppression, you prayed for judgment day. You prayed for everything to be made right. You prayed for rescue. You prayed for relief. And so the resurrection of Jesus messed all of this thinking up. Age, uh, present age and the age to come and a seam between them. See, the Jewish rabbis had the expectation that the resurrection of all humanity would happen with Messiah at the end of history, right? So instead, they got a resurrection of one man in the middle of history, and it messed all this up. So there was kind of a twist in the plot. Um, Any Lord of the Ring fans in here? There was about 12 at the first service. There's there's a few more. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. If you've only seen the movies, take the summer and read the books. He, um, there's so much more, it's so much better. <laughs> he uh, came up with a, with, a, with a word called eucatastrophe. And we all know what catastrophe is. But E-U, the, the prefix of that is called good. It's good, good catastrophe. He came up with this kind of uh, definition for it. He said, it's a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. A happy ending. The point is it's a sudden resolution of events. Basically, he went on to say it's a story that pierces you with joy that brings tears. So in Lord of the Rings, if you remember, you think it's not going well, and all of a sudden Gandalf is back, you know? And in an interview with Tolkien, he said that Easter was the greatest of all eucatastrophes. And Paul was one of the first Jewish rabbis to work out the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it kind of messed with his worldview, right? Present age, 
age to come, seam in the middle. Paul's like, wait a second, what does this mean? And Paul and other New Testament writers interpret Easter to mean that Jesus has opened through his life, uh, death, and resurrection, has opened up a portal into the future. Meaning that in doing so, Jesus dragged the age of come, the age to come, into the present age. Meaning he pulled heaven, crashed it into earth. N.T. Wright is a famous scholar. He wrote this. The resurrection of Jesus declared that Jesus was not the ordinary sort of political king. A rebel leader that some had supposed. He was the leader of a far larger, more radical revolution that anyone had ever supposed. He was inaugurating a whole new world, a new creation, a new way of being human. He was forging a way into a new cosmos, a new era, a form of existence hinted at all along, but never before unveiled. Here it is, he was saying. This is the new creation you've been waiting for. It is open for business. Come and join in. And this is what Paul's getting at in his letter to the Corinthians when he says, for, for this world in its present form is passing away. Now, a lot of fundamentalists actually uh, misinterpret this and misinterpreted this to, to mean that the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> it's passing away. But the word present form is actually the Greek word schema, which where we, that's where we get the word schematic. And basically the world as it's set up, the scheme of the world, the schematic of the world is passing away. Power, corruption, greed, deception, those kinds of things. Those are passing away. What Paul is saying is it's not apocalyptic. He's saying this is not the end of the world. It's end, the end of a world. A world in which these things happen. For Paul, we live in a time of overlap. So how he used to see it is the present age, the age to come. Now they're overlapped. And it's called the time, as uh, George Ladd said, it's a time between the times. So in Romans 8, Paul says that right now, as we speak, there is a world that is dying off. And right now, as we speak, there is a world that is being born. Make sense? And it's kind of heavy stuff, but I think it's really important for us because for, for some of us, we're left with these two options. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. It's never been better. Utopia is here. Paul's saying, no, no, no. There's a third way to think about this. There's a third story about the relation of, relation of reality. And I think the first thing Paul tells us is this. Life is full of suffering, frustration, and groaning. Life's full of that. Well, look at verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says in verse 20, for the creation was subject to frustration. Verse 22, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And, and in verse 23, he says, not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. Like we groan. Paul's metaphor for the felt experience of life in the time between the times, this overlap, is in of an expectant mother who's waiting to give birth, groaning for the pain to end and for the baby to be born. And we do this all the time. We groan. 
we, we groan, we go, okay, how many more? When will the school shootings end? When will the gap for rich and, rich and poor change? When will the gap, the racial divide change? When will utopia come? We groan at all the ache of unfulfilled desire in our lives. Carl Reiner wrote, in this life, all of our symphonies remain unfinished. Now, I don't know if you feel that way, but no matter how much money or no matter education, college education, no matter how many lattes you drink or how many experiences you have or how many places you travel to, no matter how good things are, it always remains and feels unfinished, right? There always seems to be, and maybe you have a dull ache in your life over a relationship or a marriage or a child or the, 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 the death of a dream or the regret of a past in your life. And you're here and you're groaning and you're frustrated. And I just want to tell you, welcome to being human. That's part of, he, Paul is like really re, real and authentic here. He's just like, that's part of this journey. That's part of this life. And no matter how hard we try, the West cannot seem to figure out how to handle it. And the Enlightenment has not been able to solve it. And sure, here's the thing. We can mitigate it. We can mitigate it through technology. We can mitigate it through progress. And we can even ignore it through Netflix. You know what I mean? The dull ache. We can do that, all that stuff. But we can't stop out, stomp out the ache. We can't get rid of it. Because to be human is to bleed. To be human is to hurt. To be human is to die. And Paul is brutally honest about the human condition. And if you're here and you're aching for something better, you're not alone. But then he goes on and he says, the main problem of the world is the human condition. And, and I think this is so true. It's not this political party or that political party or immigration reform or North Korea or modern country. It's all, all that's a problem. No one laughs at my country jokes anymore. All that's a problem. I should stop those then. That's what I feel like. <laughs> Feedback? Cut the country jokes? Okay. All that's a problem, but the problem really is it's all symptoms of the human condition or what we would call the heart or what Paul would call the flesh. Okay? This default kind of animal-like part of us that can't control ourselves and we feel enslaved to what, doing things we don't want to do, but we want to do them, kind of. It's like this weird part. Most of us grew up with a humanistic anthropology, meaning we're all born beautiful, wonderful little children. We're little snowflakes, but we're corrupted by everybody around us. And so um, the problem is external, not internal. And as we grow up, if we just get the right candidate or the right legislation or the right iPhone app, that we can fix it. But secular anthropology is actually learning that this isn't working. Take a look at this. This is Jordan Peterson. He's not a Jesus follower. Look what he writes. If society is corrupt, but not the individuals in it, then where did this corruption originate and how is it propagated? Right? I mean, even 
people in higher levels of science and philosophy, evolutionary psychologists like Jordan Peterson are saying the data is in, there is no question, something is wrong, is not wrong outside of us as much as it's wrong inside of us. Or is that famous line, we have met the enemy and he is us. Paul says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. And he says in 21 that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. So this idea that we're not the only ones frustrated, creation itself is frustrated. Creation all around us is frustrated. And so many of us want to save the world, and that's not all bad, but we also need to be saved. Something needs to be transformed inside of us. We need to be saved by something or someone outside of ourselves. And, and it's not a new philosophy, and it's not a self-help book, and it's not new medication. We actually believe it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul gets on to his main point, which is the main hope for the world and the human condition is resurrection. Verse 22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we'll get into that in a second, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That line, the redemption of our bodies, is actually code language. It's actually a nod to resurrection. And not, not Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection, which is kind of mind-blowing stuff. And a lot of people, especially people in the church, believe that their life is a two-step process. Life on earth, like we're all experiencing it right now, right? And then life after death, you know? So whether you believe in heaven or hell or nothing, okay? Two-step process. Scriptures tell us that it's a three-step process. Now, a lot of Christians get this wrong. A lot of followers of Jesus get this wrong. It's not only life here on earth and life after death, but as N.T. Wright calls it, it's life after life after death. Paul calls it resurrection. See, what happened to Jesus will happen to you and I who follow Jesus. Meaning, when you give allegiance to Jesus, we, like Jesus, will be buried. And then one day we will be raised from the dead. And the metaphor used here is first fruits. It's kind of a farming term. Any farmers? No? Didn't think so? It's an agrarian farming term that basically says, like, when you look around, like, we're experiencing this right now in Denver, like, the buds are all coming out, the flowers are coming up, the lawn's greening up, it's like this, the first signs of spring, that life is coming, and what Jesus, what Paul's saying is that Jesus is the first fruits of it, meaning his resurrection is a taste of what the rest will be like for you and for me, but read carefully, for Paul, that future has already started that Jesus inaugurated it, coming of the Spirit inaugurated it, set it into motion. And if Paul were here today, he would say that the Enlightenment was not the turning point in human history, that the resurrection of Jesus was. And there's a reason we measure time this way, before Jesus, after Jesus. His life, his teachings, his example, his miracles, his kingdom work, his stand for justice, then his arrest 
by religious authorities, his execution under the Roman Empire, three days later, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that all inaugurates a whole new world right into the middle of this one. Setting in motion the death of the one world scheme, the schematic of the present age, okay, and a birth of a new world. And you see tastes and glimpses of it. But right now we experience unfinished symphonies. We groan and we ache. But we don't groan and ache in grief of the past. We actually, and not even present stuff, we're actually groaning and aching now for the hope of the future, for Jesus to come back and finish what he started. And that's what Easter is. Easter is not a look back thing. It's a look forward thing. And we celebrate, but we also groan. We are in that middle part where where there's tension between this world and this world. And the aim of our futures, right, is the return of Jesus making all things new. That's what Easter is. And it's the first time you're hearing that. There's a lot there. I get it. You're probably like, really? Wow. But you might expect... As you might expect, that idea of a groan and an ache is pretty universal. And the invitation for you has always been and will always be to join the story of Jesus. To insert your micro story into the macro story of Jesus. And a lot of times, uh, the conversation has been, especially for American Christians has been do your life however you want, show up at church, and add Jesus to your life, like a little shot in your latte, right? But that's not what's happening here. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's vision for the future is not you doing better. Paul's vision for the whole cosmos is is it being set free from groaning. The invitation for you is the same pattern of, of, of life as it was for Jesus. Death, burial, resurrection. Death, laying down and surrendering your old patterns, our old patterns of life that matches the present age scheme of life. Laying those down, surrendering those, asking forgiveness, uh, repenting of those things. The burial of Jesus that you and me, we together, we wait and we trust that all we are and all we want to be is actually into the love of God. And then resurrection, a new way of life that we can begin to live now based on the teachings of Jesus. gives us a new spirit. A new uh, like infusion in our life, a new an, an, a spirit in our life that is actually pulling us towards the future, the age to come, and not stuck in this old way of thinking. We would match the new world that is breaking into the present one, and so that's the invitation, and that's just simply our invitation. That's all we announce here that we want to invite you into a family that says yes to that. John calls it life that is truly life. Jesus called it eternal life. Better translation of that in Greek is actually the life of the age to come. So when anybody ever says eternal life, 
That's the life of the age to come. Not a ticket to heaven, but an invitation to a life of the age to come in the present age. Right? And all of us are invited to that no matter who you are or how you show up today. And so this morning, um, as the band comes back up, and as it sounds like there is serious sugar (laughs) going on next door, for you parents, the age to come is uh, (laughs) breaking into the present age right now. The invitation is that maybe for some of you today, you've never heard it that way. You've heard it that you're a horrible person and that you need to get your act cleaned up and you need to figure this out. And, and, and by coming here, we're just gonna, you're just going to feel shame. No, I want you to hear the invitation of Jesus that says there is a, there's a fuller version of life. There is ache and groaning here, but there is a full version of life through me for you. And, and maybe for some of you, that's just that part where you just got to go, okay, I'm ready for that. I want to I lay down this life that I've been trying. It's just broken and messed and achy. And I want to pick up this new version of life that only comes from Jesus. And so for some of us, for some of you in the room, maybe you're just like, hey, I'm willing, I'm not willing to do that yet, but I'm willing to kind of investigate more. Like, I just want to be around this and hear about this and wrestle with this. This is a community of wrestlers. We're always wrestling and wondering and asking questions and reading and figuring this out. And we, we just want to invite you to do that with us. And so let me just pray. And, and wherever you're at, you know, just follow along if you'd like. 